What's up, guys? Welcome back. Episode 2 of the APL Lounge. Your host, Josh, joined again by Sergio. Serge, good to have you back. Good to be back. Another uh, big episode ahead as well. Last week, obviously, we discussed the top four, the top two, the top four, the top six. Flip things around this week. We're going to preview the bottom half, or rather the absolute bottom of the barrel. Take a look at the three newly promoted sides as well as the teams that we feel are going to be going down at the end of the year and have a little bit of fun at the end of the podcast as well with the first manager to be sacked. So Looking forward to that one. Yeah, I'm sure you are. <laughs> so a lot to get through today. Let's start with the new boys. Villa, Norwich, Sheffield all coming up. All having different summers so far in terms of the transfer market. How many... Of these sides, if any of them, do you see staying up at the end of the year? Okay, well, for me, I think the the first thing I want to look at when these teams are coming up is their level of ambition. Now, that doesn't mean that if you don't invest in the squad, it's impossible to to make a game of it. But, you know, I see flaws in both uh, the Sheffield outfit and the Norwich outfit in particular. I think Sheffield United are too defence-oriented and it's going to be really tough to continue playing that style of football in the Premier League where the top clubs just tear you to shreds if you park the bus. And I look at Norwich and they've got that really exciting, expansive style of play. They were the best attacking team in the Championship last season. And again, you know, Fulham came up to the Premier League and they tried to, uh, they tried to attack and you just get punished with that style as well. Now, Aston Villa, they're the most interesting one for me because they have showed some ambition and we can expect them to keep going back. They also have that Premier League pedigree. They know what it takes to to stay in the league. So I'm backing them, but I think it's going to be a really tough road for Norwich and Sheffield. Yeah, I I definitely think particularly for Sheffield, it's going to be a a tough ask. Like you said, coming up and and playing that defensive style... just doesn't work. We saw it with Cardiff last season. You yeah. you can't just park the bus and, and try to pick up a point here and there and snatch wins late on it. Over the course of the 38-game season, it's just not sustainable. You're not going to pick up enough points to keep yourself in the Premier League. It's that simple, really. Yeah, I think with Norwich, like you said, they've, they've come up with this reputation of playing expansive, exciting football scoring goals, being free-flowing going forward. It's, again, it's also tough to then replicate that in the Premier League given the fast-paced nature of the top division versus the championship where it's a lot more physical and a lot more rigid week in, week out. That being said, I mean, we saw Wolves come up and play terrific football and they managed to stick to their brand and do so really well. I think, obviously, the the glaring difference is the quality and in the squads, and particularly the starting eleven between the two, I think Wolves uh, showed the ability to defend pretty damn well at various stages last season, too. Yeah, well, I, yeah, they definitely are a more well-rounded side, I think, all, all around versus what Norwich are. Uh, and not not only as a squad, but in particular in that starting eleven, I just don't feel the Canaries have that talent. To keep them up, to you know, to, to go out and play on the front foot against teams who simply are, are, they've got to outclass them. Yeah, they have they have much more 
quality at both ends of the field and that's it's it's going to be harsh it's going to be a bit of a reality check for them i think in the opening month in particular obviously their first first game up is about as daunting as you can get but yeah whether that being said if they come out and if they have a good first month that could be enough to really instill enough confidence in the squad to go out and, and ensure that they do survive the drop I think in the modern era of Premier League football, you're much better off coming up with an approach like Norwich and just saying, you know, we're actually going to have a go at teams and we are going to play our style of football and we're going to push forward. Uh, That can backfire as well, but you give yourself a much better chance of success than trying to sit back and, you know, just soak up the one-pointers over the course of the season. Whereas 20 years ago, a lot of the promoted clubs were doing that, but times have changed. The... The, the Liverpool and the Man Cities and the Spurs will just absolutely tear you apart and destroy your confidence if you try and sit back against them. Yeah, and also, I mean, if you come up and you play that expansive style of football, the fans are appreciative of it. Yeah. And if the fans are supportive of you week in, week out, irrespective of a slow start and, you know, potentially lagging behind in the early goings, that makes a huge difference to the club, to the players as a whole to, to know that you know you have that support behind you almost regardless of the results whereas if you're playing a boring brand of football you're getting done week in week out you're falling behind all of a sudden it becomes a very gloomy place for everyone players coaching staff and fans alike absolutely i think it's worth pointing out as well that the margins are so razor thin at the bottom of the table that injuries and form and momentum will be absolutely crucial we spoke yesterday about the uh the 23 point gap between uh second place and third place and 23 points separates you from upper mid table to relegation so you know those one or two or three points can determine whether you're going to be in the premier league or the championship the following season yeah that's exactly right and in that case like you said if it if it takes a just that little bit of luck and a bit of a run for, you know, even it can only be a three or four week run, but it can ultimately decide where it is you're playing your football next season. Especially when you're looking at Norwich and Sheffield, Norwich are the ones who are capable of stringing together a good month of football, a good enough month of football to garner enough of a return, I think. Absolutely. The flip side now, we're looking at Villa, like you said, they're they're the most likely to stay up of the three for various reasons. I mean, look at the money they've spent. Upwards of $100 million. They've spent more money than most of the top clubs in Europe. They're actually the... I believe it was the sixth highest spending club in Europe so far this, this summer, which is phenomenal, really, I guess, for a team of that stature who's only just making a return to the Premier League. It's certainly a signal of intent, but we've seen in the past... We saw it with Fulham last year. We've seen it with QPR previously where these clubs come up, they splash the cash, bring in wholesale changes and ultimately, I guess, ruin the chemistry of what worked for them so well last season in getting promoted that things just fall apart, especially in the early goings, that they're playing catch-up, I guess, almost from week one because the team simply hasn't had time to gel and it just doesn't work. Do you see something like that being the case for Villa? Do you feel like spending you know, upwards of $100 million bringing in almost 10 new faces is going to hinder them in any way? Or 
is it going to you know invigorate that squad and and help take them to that next level? Obviously, I, I believe that it it can hinder them, but again, only time will tell. I, I don't think it's fair to look at the um, Fulham model necessarily as a reflection of what is going to happen to Aston Villa. I think that there was a lot more going wrong with Fulham as a club in the Premier League last season than just their inability to to bring in new players and maintain that chemistry. I think there was a really poor balance in the squad and defensively they were just absolutely horrific. They were leaking goals uh, left, right and centre from the very first day of the campaign and they did absolutely nothing to, to fix their problems. So... You know, by the time it got to the halfway point of the season, they'd sacked a couple of managers and morale was low. I think the writing was on the wall for them. So, you know, I don't necessarily expect Aston Villa to to follow that path. I think you give yourself, in the grand scheme, a better chance of success if you do invest and you are willing to spend those players. Obviously, there are some drawbacks to that as well. Uh, there's going to be significant pressure on the club. So if they don't uh, hit the ground running... You know, if they go six or seven games without a win, you might see the fans begin to to turn on the club. And uh, I think that negativity could come in much sooner at a club like Villa than we might see it at Sheffield yeah, or definitely. Norwich. I definitely agree with that. I think, look, one, one thing they've done much better than the likes of both QPR and Fulham, as um, I referred to in terms of spending big and bringing in an influx of players, is... They've done so very early in the window. They've given themselves every opportunity yeah. to integrate these players with the squad, have a full preseason together, in order to, like you said, hit the ground running from from match day one and and not put themselves in a position like Fulham last season, where you know the first few weeks of the season they're still trying to work out what their best eleven is. Yeah, and. That is always a concern for a newly promoted club. If if you don't know, if you don't have an identity, you don't know what your best starting team is, your best formation. You're changing things tactically week in week out. Then you're destined for relegation immediately. The league is just too too unforgiving to work things out as you go along. So one thing, yes, they've done well is they've gone out, they've brought the players in as early as possible, giving them ample time, I guess, to settle in and and fit with the players pre-existing. I do still have a little bit of a concern. I think my my problem with it is for the players who worked so hard last season to win promotion, obviously they went through the playoffs as well, so they were, yeah. weren't guaranteed the automatic promotion. It's such a taxing and tolling year and to finish on such a euphoric high and then see all of these new players brought in essentially as replacements for you because let's be honest a club like Villa isn't spending money to strengthen their squad they're spending money to strengthen their starting 11 more so than anything else so you know these big name signings aren't going to sit on the bench players like you know Tyrone Mings is being brought in for 20 million from Bournemouth that that's someone who they expect to start week in week out of course and it can be disheartening for the the rest of the squad and you know like you said if they get off to a slow start the fans get a little bit disgruntled. The players that were there previously start feeling disgruntled at the fact that they're not starting week in, week out. And all of a sudden, it becomes a tough task for the manager to keep the unity within the dressing room in order to change the results on the field. Yeah. No, I definitely agree with that point. 
I think it's always difficult when new players come in and they're going to be challenging for your spot. You know, you would like to think that in an ideal world, the players would welcome the competition and they would actually provide a, a spark up their butt and they would, you know, play out of their skin to try and keep their spots. But the reality is that, you know, this team has, um, you know, they fought for promotion and they, they just got there. So they probably feel that the players that got them there in the first place will feel like they do deserve a chance. But, you know, at the end of the day, uh, football is a ruthless sport and, you know, every club is basically going to have to do what is in, in their best interest to, uh, to achieve their goals. And for Aston Villa, that's staying in the Premier League and obviously just scraping into the uh, Premier League mix from the playoffs they've decided that they're going to have to invest and they need a stronger squad to keep them there. Yeah, look, it'll be interesting to see how it comes together for them. I think one thing we can both agree on, though, is that not only are they most likely of the three to stay in the Premier League, in a three-horse race between the three sides, Villa are going to finish above the other two. Is that fair to say? I think so. Yeah, and looking at that, one of our pun school best bets for this week is best of the newly promoted clubs at Unibet. Aston Villa $1.85 to finish on more points than both Norwich and Sheffield, which I think is an absolute steal personally. And I'd say you're inclined to agree. Absolutely. No, I think that is a really good bet. Uh, we've spoken sort of of the inherent weaknesses of both uh, Sheffield and Norwich and Aston Villa at the very least. They're showing ambition. So... You know, as you could still see Aston Villa getting relegated and still win that bet. Yeah, exactly right. <laughs> exactly, all three going back down. I probably wouldn't be the most shocking thing in the world. It's happened before. It has happened before. That being said, let's let's have a look at the three sides you feel most likely to get relegated. We'll, uh, I guess, compare our lists and see where we stand. So, look. Of the three newly promoted sides, one team I see definitely going down is Sheffield. Yep, I, I agree with that. Like you said, that the style of play just doesn't suit the Premier League. I don't think they've done enough in the transfer market either to show enough ambition in that regard. I mean, yes, they've they've broken their transfer record three times this summer, which to me doesn't mean anything. I mean, when you've yeah. been out of the Premier League that long and you have to spend to buy players, you're going to break your record every single time. So, yeah that, yeah, that that side of things doesn't shock me at all. But, again, that there's it's really a, a back-to-the-wall job for them. Phil Jagielka coming back, their most experienced Premier League player. But you look at the rest of that squad and there's not a lot for them to lean on. Yeah, that that's the biggest issue for me. You just look at the, the Premier League experience across the whole squad and there just isn't very much. You take Jagielka out of there and you've only got a, a few players that have played you know, a handful of times in the Premier League at previous clubs and obviously not proven themselves on that occasion. So I exactly. mean, well, With that in mind, I mean, one of those record signings is Liz Mousset from Bournemouth who he went there with a big reputation couldn't break into the first team at all, got very few opportunities. Sheffield have now gone and splashed cash on him. And don't get me wrong, I, I do think he's a talented young player, but again, unestablished, unproven in the Premier League. And you've gone and spent a large sum of money on on him to essentially lead the front line in, in your attempts to stay in the Premier League. And 
the problem I think with players like that is for them to flourish at Sheffield is almost an impossible task given that chances are so few and far between up top. I mean, you know, you saw it with Cardiff last season. Their strikers just had no service whatsoever. For a player who probably is already low on confidence, yes, he'll no doubt have a boost. The whole fresh start will, I guess, reinvigorate him to some extent. But a player who, you know, hasn't proven himself in the league, is low on confidence. The longer he goes without scoring that first goal is also going to be telling, I think, into the type of season he has and Sheffield have going forward. But, you know, the the rest of that side, again, Callum Robinson brought in for what was previously a record fee as well, whether he can make the jump from the championship at Preston to to the Premier League remains to be seen. And like you said, the rest of that squad is just too inexperienced to really mount any sort of suggestion that they can survive life in the Premier League. Yeah, and I mean, leading the responsibility of leading that front line, you're going to have to be absolutely critical to, to be successful in that role because you're only going to have two or three chances a game. They might just be half chances and you're going to have to latch onto them and you're going to have to believe that, that you can finish them. And it's frustrating for a striker to uh, not touch the ball for large portions of the game and then all of a the sudden there's a break or a counter-attack and you're expected to switch into, the, into gear. Much the same as when a keeper has barely been active exactly, and then yeah. they're called into action. So I think that's very much what the centre-forward uh, role is going to be like at Sheffield. And Interesting you know. stat I saw the other day as well. Of all the starting strikers at Cardiff, or whoever rather, whoever started a game at Cardiff, they averaged just 3.2 touches per 90 minutes. That doesn't surprise me. That's that's <laughs> incredible. for, for yeah. to, to play 90 minutes and to touch the ball maybe three times and... That's not to say you're even going to touch it in and around the box either. Well, there you go. And imagine how much uh, jockeying and running and attempts to touch the ball there are in that 90 minutes. Like, they'll they'll be fighting for the ball from the start of that game to, to yeah. the end and to only have it in your possession three times. You know, that's an average of once every uh, 30 minutes or yeah. even more. That's disheartening, let's say. Very, yeah. <laughs> especially, especially for a, a young striker as well who will want to be making a name for himself. That, that just adds another level of intrigue, I think, to how it is things will pan out there. So, yeah, both of us, I think, are definitely in agreement that Sheffield will be one of the three sides to finish yes. uh, in the relegation spots. Who else do you have going down? So I do have Newcastle in my I, second spot. I do have Newcastle as well in my second spot. Um. I'll let you talk about them first, but uh, there's, I could I could talk for hours about Newcastle right now. I think you mentioned last week that you thought United were the worst run club in the Premier League, but for me, it's Newcastle United hands down. Well, I'll at least give Mike Ashley credit for appointing Rafa Benitez because I think uh, you know he was a really important manager for them, and he got the most out of uh, let's say a bad bunch. Of players, um, and he also got the most uh, for a, for a club that played very very negative football. Let's let's not mince words. Uh, yep. He got the most out of his attacking players. He got Rondon scoring, and you know Perez had his moments yep. at Newcastle last season. Um, but for me, it really is about the fan negativity at Newcastle. They are one of the the most 
well-supported clubs. They're one of the biggest the country. clubs in England. They're, they're but, pulling 70,000 yeah. supporters a game, and you know they are quite a historic club. Uh, even in recent history, they finished second, and they had a really good spell under Bobby Robson. So the fans do have expectations, and when they're seeing their club, you know, run into the ground, and you know, I think Mike Ashley got crushed by the uh, global financial crisis, if I'm not mistaken. And yep. ever since then, he basically has not been able to invest properly in, in the club. And they have been pretty pretty badly run. So I think the fans have had enough, especially after this offseason. And they were close to selling the club at one point. And, yeah. you know, that got the fans quite excited. And now that that's not happening... and I think, I think those rumours really hurt that club a lot more than yeah. they would for any other side. I mean, that, that glimmer of hope that the Mike Ashley era might finally be over, that they can return, I guess, to the levels that the fans so badly desire. It was spoken about as if it was almost a done deal and it was a matter of time before it happened. And now we're, you know, we're looking at it as if it was nothing more than just a newspaper rumour that spiraled out of control and and you know yeah. whether there was any truth to it or not i don't know i don't think anyone really knows but the situation it's left them in now is like you said a, a fan base who are disgruntled to put it politely uh they've lost easily the best manager that they've had in god only knows how long probably since bobby robson was in charge and yeah a manager who let's be honest, was probably bigger than what they had any right to lure to the club. Yep. They've now replaced him with Steve Bruce, who I, yes. I think is as poor an option as you possibly could have had. And he's been left with a squad that is absolutely championship level at best. I mean, I would be shocked if I spoke to one single Newcastle fan that was happy with the appointment of Steve Bruce. It is just the least imaginative appointment that you could possibly make in that role. And, you know, I look at the club now and I feel like uh, the Vultures are circling Ashley. And, uh, yeah, they have made this Joe Ellington signing. Yep. And it is quite a big signing, but it feels to me like he's just throwing them a bone. Yeah, you're exactly right. Look, it is a good signing. I think he's a talented young player, technically very gifted. But how on earth is he going to fit into Steve Bruce's style of play? I mean, this isn't a manager who is going to come in there and encourage his players to play expansive, free-flowing football. He's probably as far from that as you can possibly imagine. And you're bringing in a young Brazilian kid who's never played in the Premier League, doesn't have the natural size to sort of adapt to the physicality instantly. It's going to take him time as well. But he's now going to have to do so in a system that is just going to be so rigid and almost the polar opposites of what it is he's used to playing at Hoffenheim that I, I, you know, I almost feel for him because I don't think he can succeed where he is right now. He's, he's coming into a very hostile atmosphere at the club. It's going to be very, very difficult for him to adapt to a new country and a, a new club that has their back against the wall and to actually do his thing. And, you know, I, I think back to, um, you know, Arsene Wenger at Arsenal and, 
you know, years ago, uh, I think it was Keane at Blackburn Rovers, where the fans, they, they just had had enough. And there was nothing that the club could do, um, you know, under that miasma of fan hatred and negativity and the protest. And, you know, that almost, uh, you know, it sinks the club into the ground. And I think that's where Newcastle are heading at the moment. Yeah, and, you know, you see it all over social media as well. Like, jump on Twitter and go find a Newcastle post of any sort and the fans are talking about boycotting the season, not renewing season passes, doing anything and everything possible to put extra strain and pressure on on Ashley to to just leave or to sell the club. And, And it's at a point now where they almost feel like anyone will do. They don't even care who it is that comes over and comes in and takes over. Of course, as but, long as it's not him. <laughs> yeah, anyone but him. So, like you said, it's 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 such a toxic culture right now around that club. I think Bruce has almost been brought in as just a a, a front, like a, a puppet for Mike Ashley. I feel like he, you know, he's had a manager in Benitez who's fantastic tactically and and got the best out of the squad, but was very vocal in the media about the lack of support he felt he got from the board and and wanting to put that pressure back on the owners to, you know, essentially lift their game if if they wanted the club to succeed and to elevate them from where it is that they've been sitting for the last few years. You're not going to get that with Steve Bruce. He's going to get someone who's essentially a yes man and who's going to do as he's asked, who's going to defer from such comments in public and in the press and, you know, you feel like this appointment was more so for Mike Ashley than it was for Newcastle United. Definitely. It's it's going to be a tough season for, for Newcastle and everyone involved in that club. You know, for their sake, I, I hope that, uh, you know, there is a miracle between now and the end of the season and uh, Mike Ashley finds a buyer, but it doesn't look likely at the moment, does it? No. Like, like I said, it... You wonder whether there was any truth to those rumours initially. Like, they, they seem to just die overnight that, and without a trace that, yeah. that, you know, whether we see anything come to fruition between now and the start of the season or the end of the calendar year, I guess, remains to be seen. But unless we see something drastic like that, I think they're almost destined for relegation. I agree. And... You know, with that, that's our second pun school best bet as well of this podcast. Newcastle to get relegated, sitting at $3.80 on Bet Easy. A terrific bit of value there. I don't think we're going to see that price last much longer. You can see it around at $3 already in some places as well. We had a comment as well saying that there was a market for Newcastle to be bottom of the table on Christmas Day for $11. I couldn't find it myself. I'll have to delve into it and I'll tweet that out if we do see it but that's a fantastic bit of value as well wouldn't you say sounds like incredible value I mean they've got especially a, with their run yeah um, they've to got start a, the season a very tough run to start the season like we said I mean it, things are falling apart from them and we haven't even kicked a ball yet this season so a couple losses to start the year and you can see that club essentially imploding definitely at, at 11 to 1 as well yeah it's fantastic value huge odds now, your third club. Who do uh, you have joining those two? I've got a controversial one for my third. I'm <laughs> going to have to ask you and the listeners to bear with me on this one. Hit me. Let's do this. 
I'm, I'm going with West Ham United. That's not shocking given the way you spoke <laughs> about them at times last year, but definitely controversial in that I can probably name six sides who I think are worse off, but go for it. Hear me out, hear me out. <laughs> so I do think that West Ham is the most unpredictable club in the Premier League era. Yep. I think they're comparable to Everton, you know, in the sense of the, the stature of the club. They should be consistently, uh, you, you know, a top eight club, and that shouldn't change. They've got the resources, they, they've got the, uh, the the management and the history in place to basically emulate the, the Everton model. However, what do we see from West Ham? We consistently see the unexpected. We've seen them yo-yo between the divisions. Yep. Um, under Glenn Rota, they finished seventh and were relegated the next season. Uh, with, uh, if I'm not mistaken, the highest relegated points total in history, 42, 44, something along those lines. Yeah. You know, normally 40 points has you safe. So we just have this history of not knowing what to expect from West Ham. In addition to that, uh, it, I'm famously not a fan of Manuel Pellegrini. <laughs> yeah. I think he's the most overrated manager in the league. And if you look at him, uh, his run at Manchester City over the long run, he took that club backwards in a, in a really significant way. Um, you know, I, I do admit that he was successful in Spain, but even there, I think his record is padded by good timing and convenient circumstances. Yep, yep. So I'm not a fan of Pellegrini. I've, I've seen the way that, uh, you know, he drags clubs down over the long run. West Ham just has this history of... Uh, you know, you don't know what you're going to get from them. So in some respect, West Ham are the only club in the league that whether they finish 6th or they finish 20th, I'm not going to be tremendously surprised. I do think the squad has some quality. So, you know, it's funny that they're not even in the discussion for breaking into that top 6. But in my opinion, when you look at the money that they've spent this season and last season, the quality of guys like Felipe Anderson, yep. um, they should at least be in the discussion. But we really don't know what we're going to get from West Ham. And I think that Pellegrini is going to drag them down into the gutters. $11, by the way, to get relegated, in case you were wondering. I'll, I'll be putting a, a cheeky 50 on that one. <laughs> I, yeah, one thing you, you're not wrong about is they're certainly an unpredictable club. And I think I've said this to you before. They could be sitting sixth on Christmas Day. Or they could be sitting 18th on Christmas Day. And neither one of them would shock me. And with that in mind, I mean, we saw last season they were off to a very shaky start yep. early on. And they were able to sort of work their way out of it. If they get off to a shaky start again under Pellegrini, in the same way we've spoken about the importance of having the support of the fans, do we then start to see something similar happening You know, in London where the West Ham fans start saying enough is enough, this clearly isn't the man who's going to take the club forward, the pressure starts to mount then on ownership potentially pulling the plug, looking elsewhere... I guess if all those things come to fruition, then yes, I can see them being a relegation candidate. But like you said, they've got they've just got too much talent in that squad to to justify being a bottom three side. 
And I know that talent gets you, you know, only so far if, if you're not performing and pulling your weight together, especially in the Premier League. So I, I think $11 is probably a reflective price of where I would have them as well, but... Yeah, it's it's a tough one. I can't. I can't, definitely can't say I agree. Look, I'm I'm going to admit that it's it's an outside bet. Um, would I would I bet my life on them going down? Probably not. But at eleven to one, yeah, that... I, I I like them. Um, and uh, yeah, you know, I do like to think outside the box and and try and find a club that you know no one is really talking about relegation. But I think that you know some of the markers are certainly there for me. Yeah, it's it's tough to. Tough to defend them at times, based like you said on the history of the club. I think more so than anything else. Um, for me, though, the third team is Brighton. I think I, I genuinely think that they're destined to go back to the championship, whether this season or next season. How they survive this season, though, is beyond me because they've they've literally shown no ambition in the transfer market. They've done nothing to show support to Graham Potter. I think he's been given an impossible task. This is a side who last season struggled to score goals. Yep. And they're going to struggle to score goals again. Now, what we've seen from them, or what we, you know, the lack of action we've seen from them in the transfer market is almost a mirror image of what we saw from Huddersfield 12 months ago. Mm -hmm. And their demise was quick and it was painful to watch at times. And you felt for the, you felt for the managers that were there. You felt for the fans and the players at times as well, knowing that they were fighting a losing battle. And I, I just feel like Brighton's season is almost going to be a carbon copy of that. This year, they're going to struggle to find any sort of consistency in stringing together results. They're going to find themselves likely, in my opinion, bottom, if not, you know, joint bottom by Christmas. And if that's the case, that they, they, they don't have the talent to pull themselves out. They've got an inexperienced manager who... Again, he's obviously not proven, but who has question marks about whether he can actually coach at this level. And that's that's immediately a recipe for disaster in the Premier League, really. You don't want to be in that position, especially when you're a club who's already tinkering on the border of relegation as it was. Yeah, I, I mean, they finished last season two points off the drop uh, in 17th place. And, you know, I think they would reflect on that season as being a success for that reason. And I think if if they get a repeat this season, uh, equally, it will be a success for them just to have that Premier League status. It would be a huge That's success. Huge cl- success. Clearly, their goal is just to stay in the league for as long as possible. And, you know, we've spoken about ambition so extensively on this podcast and last week. At the end of the day, if, if the ambition isn't there, then, you know, the quality on the pitch isn't going to be there either. So I think it's a matter of time before Brighton get relegated. Whether or not they're that bad is going to have to, you know, it's going to be determined what happens between now and 
the start of uh, sorry the end of the transfer window rather. Yeah, I look. I think at three at uh, two eighty eight, I believe they were the last I checked. That's good value. It's it's pretty good value to say the least. They they need to do a lot between now and the end of this transfer window to change my mind about them, and unless they come out all guns blazing and you know it turns out that Potter is an absolute tactical genius and a mastermind <laughs> on the touchline I, I honestly don't have much hope for them and I think they're going to have a very painful year ahead it could very well be the one thing they do have that you know some of the, the promoted teams don't is Premier League experience now they know the league and they know what it takes and they know their own abilities to play in the league hopefully that that helps them for their for their sake. It might, it just might. But um, look, let's let's leave it at that. So we've locked in our three picks. Newcastle United being the punt school best bet to get relegated at three dollars eighty. I'm pairing or putting them, sorry, alongside Sheffield and Brighton. And I'll put them beside Sheffield and the Hammers, West Ham United. You could be a genius in about nine months' time from now. I tell you now. I'm looking forward to that podcast. <laughs> <laughs> let's uh, let's finish it off. Let's have a little bit of fun here and talk the sack race per se, and which manager is going to be fired first. Now, interesting markets, very open markets out there. I think they'll change depending on which bookie you look at as well. So, just looking at the sports bet bookies. Solskjaer, Steve Bruce, joint favourites. Roy Hodgson, second favourite, an interesting one. Yep. Graham Potter, third, and then quite a bit of a jump to the likes of Frank Lampard, Dean Smith, and Chris Wilder. Now, of those, or possibly of of someone further down, I mean, you said West Ham at $11, so nothing (laughs) will shock me anymore, but who do you see being the first manager sacked? I love the favourite there, Josh. I'm I'm loving. Oh, sorry. There's joint favorite, isn't there? So yes. I should should be specific. I don't blame you for loving both favorites, <laughs> but yeah. Uh, Ollie Gunnar Solskjaer at Manchester United. <laughs> for me, you know, I'm looking at that club, and you know, unless things something could could happen to change my mind between now and the start of the season, but as it stands, I genuinely believe that the owners are already in two minds um, after their end of season collapse after Solskjaer and they're thinking to themselves did we do the right thing in giving this guy a long-term contract I think that is reflected in the lack of transfer activity now Manchester United are the richest club in the world every manager that has come in after Sir Alex Ferguson has been backed completely in the transfer market yep. they've all spent extensively uh, on numerous occasions they've broken the uh, world transfer record uh, I believe Pogba and Di Maria both broke it at the at time, the time yep. so you know Solskjaer we had a very very quiet summer and you could argue that there's a, a couple of different reasons for that but at the end of the day you know for me I'm looking at that and I'm thinking they're not sure about this guy um, they're going to give him the start of the season because of this long-term contract but I believe that you know if he doesn't have that club in the top six by Christmas, they're going to be looking. Uh, they're going to be looking to go in a different direction. So yes, they've invested a lot of time and money and the long-term contract and everything. But if they reach a point where they say to themselves, "He is not 
the long-term future of this club, they have to be ruthless and let him go, and I believe that they will. I I want to agree with you, and, and don't get me wrong, I want to, I want to bash United at any opportunity, <laughs> just like I guess any non-Man United fan does, but I, I can't see them letting him go because, you know, we spoke about that long-term contract that they gave him and we said at the time it was a mistake. We said on the podcast last week it was a mistake. You might be right. The owners might be thinking the same thing, that they have made that mistake, but I financially they cannot afford to sack another manager, not when he has so long left on his contract. I think they're still hurting from having to pay out Mourinho's contract that... To go and do so again inside of 12 months to another manager would just be catastrophic on so many levels. And not only that, I think it's also going it, to... It's dependent on who's available. I don't think... I don't envision any top-class manager becoming available in that, that period of time to warrant throwing Solskjaer under a bus in order to bring in a big name coach to you know resurrect the united culture and and put them back in the upper echelon of not only english football but european football the question marks around their lack of spending i think yeah there can be a variety of reasons i mean there's nothing to say that they're not trying and and just being unsuccessful in luring the targets that they want to bring to the club obviously it's a lot more difficult now than it has been at any point in recent memory that's true um you know they, they, they still very well may splash some big cash and bring in some big names before the start of the season it's, especially if they sell pogba which exactly if they sell pogba they have to I, it that goes without saying i mean there is no way in the world they let him go and, and not invest every last cent of that and then some into the squad again again unless unless they're already thinking ahead and they're thinking that Solskjaer isn't the right person to trust the the transfer kitty with that's so I I agree with you in the sense that you know it would be a catastrophe for them um, financially and also in terms of just the humiliation to to fire another manager on a long-term contract yep however what the owners have to do is weigh up the cost of you know, firing Solskjaer against the cost of keeping a manager at the club that is not the right person. Commercially, long-term, if you've got a guy in power that you know is not the right person to take the club forward, especially a club like Manchester United, they're desperate to get back to the glory days. Yep. Um, You know, they, for, for me, from the perspective of the owners and the board, they have to get into the top four this season. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, and the thing is, there's no, there's no better opportunity because you look around and Chelsea have a new manager. They can't buy anyone. There's a transfer ban hanging over them. Yep. Arsenal are arguably as weak as they've been as a squad for quite some time. They can buy people, but for whatever godforsaken reason, they just never seem to invest heavily or or with enough regularity to really keep that squad moving along so I mean the argument is that there's probably no better chance for them to get back into the top four than right now and to firmly establish themselves as a top four team once again so the pressure for him to deliver is certainly going to be there there's definitely no no denying that if the last quarter of the season is 
the truest representation of what that squad is capable of under Solskjaer, they have a, an enormous problem because that team was not playing well and not getting results and there is no reason to suspect that that is going to change coming into next season. Do, uh, how much do you read into... This is just a little bit off topic. Hit how me. much do you read into preseason form? Close to zero. Okay. So yeah. then, yeah. in that case, <laughs> it won't change your mind on... So, I mean, because they've won all three games and kept a clean sheet in all three so far. This, I mean, obviously... The level of opposition and the timing is a huge factor. But Wolves also beat Manchester City in the final yeah. of some preseason competition. That's and, true. You know, for me, you, you can never really... Uh, you can't pass judgment on a game where the intensity isn't there. Like, no player has that intensity in their game in preseason. That, that's why, I, personally, I can't even watch preseason anymore. Yeah. It just doesn't, uh, it doesn't interest me. And for the same reason, I can't really watch international friendlies. Yeah, um, I'm with you. I can never watch international friendlies, to be honest. As soon as you bring the competition into the equation and there's something at stake, yep. uh, the, the players are transformed physically and, and psychologically. So... Alrighty, so Solskjaer for you at $5? I'm taking Solskjaer, and what, what about yourself, Josh? Look, I, I don't want to keep harping on about Brighton and poor old Graham Potter, but for me, at $8, you'd have to, you'd always have to have a little stake at that, just because, again, he's inexperienced, he's been thrown an impossible task, which might work in his favour, mind you. I mean, he... Yeah. You know, they they could be looking at him as someone to go back down into the championship with them and be there with them long term and, you know, almost be like Eddie Howe and transform the club in its entirety, create a new identity for them. But it could also go the complete opposite direction where he's completely out of his depth. He simply cannot get the players to buy into the system. The players are then turning around thinking, who the hell is this guy? Like we're going nowhere under him. All of a sudden, the fans are jumping on board saying this is an absolute disaster in every possible way that the only option left is to sack the poor guy. And, and I'm sure it'll be by mutual consent if that day does come. But uh, look, at $8 and given the circumstances around the club, I think that for me is probably the best bit of value in the sack race. My only reservation with that is that the bar is so low at Brighton that you could very easily see this guy 18th or 19th at Christmas and still have his job. Oh, absolutely. There's no doubt about that. But, you know, the same could be said at Huddersfield. David Wagner was adored there by the fans for so long. And Mm. eventually it was also him saying, I can't do the job. I can't take this team any further. So, you know... the. The psychological pressure I think it'll put on a young manager to be, you know, if he's rock bottom at Christmas and who's to say he doesn't put his hand up and say, I, I'm just not the man for the job. Now, historically, you know, the first sacking usually occurs pretty early in the season, right? So we're, we're expecting someone to go um, statistically by, what, November? Uh, yeah, generally, I think it's around October, November, you kind of see. And... and Let's just touch really quickly on Roy Hodgson, who's second favourite. I'd that's interesting. I, I I can't see him going anywhere unless they're somehow winless after six or seven games. 
Yeah, that, that's a really interesting one for me as well. I, I, I don't I don't really understand it at that price. Uh, Roy Hodgson, you know, for that... You know, I'm not the biggest Roy Hodgson fan, but for a club that is in that sort of situation that doesn't have the greatest ambition and is going to be in the lower half of the table, Hodgson is one of the best managers that you can have. And, you know, he's proven yeah. that time and time again. You know, he's astute and, you know, he can manage that style where... He's tight defensively without the best players, but he has them organized. And then he does have a little something to offer um, on the attack. Yeah. So, you know, I think he did a pretty good job with what he had at uh, Palace last season. Um, And I don't see any reason why, you know, he's going to be doing a significantly worse job this season. Yep. He's just a very experienced, um, very savvy manager. It does have his limitations. He's never going to get that team playing a, a attacking free-flowing football but I, I, I don't like him uh, high up in the race yeah I, I don't understand why he's as short as he is to be perfectly honest I think if they end up losing Zaha then having already lost one Bissaka then I you know that's that squads if they, if they lose Zaha that's another that, that's a new conversation because he's really important to them he's sort of like that that flair player that can create something out of nothing yeah and in the tight games um, which there are going to be a lot of them with Hodgson's style of yes. play you need those um, those flair players to make the difference yeah but uh, I, I think that's another discussion if if Zaha does indeed leave and they don't replace him in, yeah. in that event so definitely so Solskjaer for you poor old Graham Potter for me but uh <laughs> A little bit of value, I guess, if you, if you fancy something there. And if you have anyone else in mind, definitely hit us up on social media because I'd be interested to see where it is you're feeling. I, I do think that Steve Bruce of $5 is another one that's probably worth a shot just given that that club is... Like I said, I could talk an hour about Newcastle right now and I think the only saving grace is the fact that he could just be a puppet man for Mike Ashley. Well that's the thing. Like is there some part of Mike Ashley that will want Steve Bruce to do such a terrible job that it takes the attention off him? If no. the fans turn on Steve Bruce exactly. <laughs> then you know Mike Ashley can take a breather and he Whoa, it's not my fault, it's yeah. this guy that I appointed. That wouldn't <laughs> that would not shock me in the slightest, let me tell you that much. So he, he like I, I think that he would have to do an awful lot wrong to get sacked quickly um, early on in the season because yeah. Ashley is certainly not the sort of owner that is going to want to sack him and uh, you know pay off the remainder of his contract whatever it is and replace him with someone yeah. else. He, I, I think he will be patient. Yeah, I, I, I can see. Yeah, I can see it going both ways. To be honest, I can. I can also see Ashley then throwing him under a bus and saying he's the reason that we're sitting bottom in September. Let's yeah. get rid of him. You know, I'm one of you guys. We'll bring someone new in. So, yeah, no, nothing shocks me with that club right now, unfortunately. <laughs> but, um, Sergio, that'll do us for this week uh, on the podcast. Thanks again to everyone for listening. Do make sure you subscribe, review, and give us some feedback on Twitter at punt underscore school. In the meantime, I'll see you next week for another interesting episode. Thanks for having me, Josh. Looking forward to it. See you next week. Uh, Thanks, guys.